welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined by your other host, Gabriel Krauser. And today, well, we've got, I think, a little bit less structure to show that we sometimes have. Uh, we do have whiskey. We have Oh, no, let's not have a repeat of last time when okay, yeah, things went a little bit off the rails. We're going to take so cheers, it slower this time. Cheers anyway. Yeah, so just to give you some context for the show, it's late on a Friday afternoon, rain's been pouring, Nick was just in the East Rand investigating some of the wonders. Failed land reform projects, yes. So it's really depressing. It's kind of where civilization stops and the misery begins. Yes, uh, that is so much of rural South Africa that's just so badly managed. So he came back really grumpy and starving. Yeah, I'm very hungry right now. So. Uh, so we've got a hungry problem. So that's what's standing between uh, me and my food is this podcast. So it's going to be a quick one. <laughs> I think this is going to be our first uh, actually 10-minute two crickets. But every listener of the show that I've talked to has said, I enjoy a lot of it. It's got a nice vibe. But please keep it under an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we might manage to finally keep it under an hour. I myself have been locked in the office for the last like 36 hours. Working on the grand report. God, it's like 5,000 words. Uh, okay. A, a holy mission. It's very depressing. It was not meant to be 5,000. It's not going to work. It's got to work. It we're, is, we're doomed. Yeah, it it's is, very much a. Ter- it's we, we're very doomed. We can't speak about it quite yet. Because yeah, because we can't get sued and stuff. Com- confidential and all that. Yeah, so it's like a lot of like. So I thought I was done yesterday, two and a half thousand words, and then our lawyer was like, "We can't. That we're going to get sued." <laughs> and I was and I was nearly sued last year. Um, so is, yeah. You can't, I mean, I think you should start off the year by being sued. That would be a very good deal for you. <laughs> that would be a great kickoff. You're going to have lunch and I'm going to get sued. Yeah, no, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm down with this. Here we go. So here's what we wanted to start off with. We wanted to talk about the many crazy, wonderful things that people have said and that are happening in our great land. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose in a way the question is, is South Africa a real country? Like we, Or is it just an elaborate, uh, an elaborate prank? Yeah. Is this the world's best soap opera? Like, are... Uh, it just just the same characters played by different actors doing even more mad versions of the same thing season after season so and that you think this season and nothing ever changes was as silly as it could be and it just gets a bit sillier mm. and the only thing that really grips you is the is the fascination of the abomination the character drama yes and the the, the endless tragedy that never seems to end yeah so um our first one is one of our great ministers i believe our minister of communications <laughs> Dude, it's quite important that she's the Minister of Communications. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she she was answering a, a, an accusation about uh, improper dealings and she very aggressively went on an interview and said, uh, I've never been to Switzerland. My husband has never been to Switzerland. Uh, we've just been to Geneva. Yeah, and New York. For, for, those, for those of you who are perhaps not so good at geography, Geneva is in Switzerland. Is it the capital of Switzerland? I think it. No, or Zurich. I think it's no, the, Zurich is the capital. Zurich's the capital, but Geneva is the biggest. Yeah, Geneva is the biggest city. It's the the fancy city on the French bit that's like beautiful and by a lake. And so, to give some slightly more context, it's like she has been accused, and there's like lots of sources that corroborate this, of getting her husband to step in to do interviews for sub for ministerial positions. She has been accused of bringing him along to conferences for like no apparent reason other than to honeymoon, literally. Yeah. And then, and they're like, 
there was no good reason for him to go to Switzerland. And she says, no, 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 we haven't been to We've Switzerland. We've never been to Switzerland. We've just to been to Geneva. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, what's number two? That's funny. Um, Lesotho. Now, that troubled little mountain kingdom has had, I believe, two basic, basically what you could call something like an invasion by South Africa in the past 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and they look like they're gearing up for us to do it again because, well, <laughs> they're asking for it. Yeah. So their their um, their prime minister, their prime minister's estranged wife, got murdered on the day of his inauguration. I think it is two days before. Or two days before his inauguration. Like then his ex-wife, he always new wife, his uh, his new girlfriend, was accused of murdering the old wife. Yeah. Now it gets worse. The prime minister himself has had murder charges filed against him. Yeah. By us. In the South African courts. And um, he's fled Lesotho. So the Prime Minister of Lesotho is wanted for murder by South Africa and he's disappeared. <laughs> so we might have to invade Lesotho. The problem is last time we tried to invade Lesotho, we ran out of petrol. Like, <laughs> Well, no, last time we just sent the police. Uh, and that, that's the one that worked better. Yeah, yeah, it's that the time the, before. The second time. It was the first it was the one in the 90s where we ran out of the petrol and we didn't have directions. We we couldn't so find the army, Lesotho. The army had to ask for directions at a, at a at a petrol station, I think, on the way. Yeah, some people can't find Geneva on a map. Other people can't find Lesotho in real life, even though we like we are literally surrounding Lesotho on every side. Thankfully, we have maps on our phones now, so so this probably wouldn't happen again. The only the only downside might be if. Um, uh, no one has data, yeah, well, which is I, very possible in the South African army. Yeah, we could also, like, I don't know if we know how to drive. There's this video that's been going around from this week of a tank, sort of, it's it's like a very big armored vehicle. I don't know if you want to call it a tank or could be mobilized. Armored, armored personnel carrier. Yeah, I think it's, anyway, I think it's got a turret. Yes, it's, this thing like flies over a bumply bump and then it's supposed to do a left. It's like on an obstacle training course and it doesn't turn left hard enough and it drives straight into a fence, but it's the fence behind which the army personnel are sitting and watching the spectacle of the tank racing around the course. So it nearly killed like 15 people. They're like scatter around. To, to, you to, hear to, them to be screaming fair, like it's a taxi rank. It, it, it was not, it was not, it, only our army does stupid things like this. The American army, when it was first uh, creating sort of AIs that could uh, lock on to targets, you know, without having to be told what to do necessary, you know, yeah. shoot down aircraft. On its first demonstration, the missile system turned towards the stands where all of the top <laughs> military brass and it locked onto the stands. <laughs> and they had to quickly evacuate. Override, override. Luckily, uh, they didn't, it didn't shoot. Because there was another problem with it. <laughs> but America could have had to launch a massive disaster where its entire top military brass could have been wiped out. AI destroys. I think this was in the, the, the 90s. It would have sounded like something out of Terminator. Yeah, exactly. Maybe James Cameron was behind it. Okay, but so on the flip side, like this, I'm glad to hear the story because one of my favorite moments, I've lived in Russia, like if for a year, if you add it all together, like three months, three months, a couple of months, uh, three months. And I think that was the second last time I was there. I was there during Stalin's birthday and I was alone, sort of getting towards winter. And winter's like eight months of the year. So when I say getting towards winter, I mean like a third of the way through winter. Uh, in South Africa, it's all winter by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's like October. Or, oh, I can't remember when his birthday is. Anyway, I, 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 I'm alone and I'm drunk. 
uh, because I'm very alone and it's and there's been no <laughs> sunshine. Like the quintessential Russian story. For like three days. So, I, so I'm like flicking through the TV channels and I've been through them all, but I realize I haven't because here's one called Nostalgia. Nostalgia. But the S, the letter S in Russian is a C. And the, so that, that C in Nostalgia is a hammer and sickle. And so it's the nostalgia for the Soviet Union episode. And they're having a special day of like celebrating Stalin's birthday. Not a joke. And part of the celebrations include they've kind of lined up the annual uh, war games that they have uh, on that day. Now, the war games, you might be thinking like, okay, big military maneuvers to like rehearse for war. No, 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 no. I mean, war games. It's Russia against Kazakhstan. <laughs> And North Korea, in some events, China also participates. And they have like, you know how like you have the skiing thing where you like ski, 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 then you stop and you shoot. They've got that with tanks. So they've got tanks going around obstacle courses and then they stop and then they have to shoot at targets and you get points for how quickly you do it and you get points for how many you miss. And you get very many minus points if you shoot another tank, but you don't get minus points if you bump another tank. <laughs> And it is like some of the most riveting TV I've ever seen because those guys are really, really good. And uh, they wonder why they lost the Cold War. <laughs> no, but I reckon they'd take us. I reckon if we want to take Lesotho, we should call the North Koreans and ask them to do something they useful. They just kill everyone. We would win the war because there would be no living organisms okay, left in okay. Lesotho. Assuming, assuming yeah. they can find it. They can find <laughs> it and get there with the petrol. I think it would be a bit expensive for them. Again, the petrol problem. We'd have to pay them a lot of money. And uh, as we're probably going to see next week with the budget, uh, we really don't have money to be paying North Korea for petrol. Yeah, we don't have the money. One, you know, just about the petrol, it really is a real thing. They can't, a, yeah, they, it is a real thing. This is not, if anytime you think we're making something up, uh, just don't worry about so, it. So this, is, this is the episode where the made-up stuff sounds real, including the time that Robert Mugabe said, I want to go to war with, uh, there's, there's like uh, documented evidence from inside his old court where he said, let's take out the Brits uh, because they're being very iffy about us taking all the land without compensation. And then uh, his, his finance minister said, uh, we don't have the petrol. <laughs> Oh yeah, the, the Germans the Germans partly lost the Second World War because they didn't have enough petrol. They didn't, yeah, the Japanese joined the made America join the war because they didn't have enough because petrol. Because they didn't have enough petrol. So it is a big problem. Uh and of course, I mean not yeah. as big as not having enough whiskey. <laughs> so <laughs> let's move on to another silly thing that's happened recently, um, which is that our president trying to sound like he was defending the non-racial Okay, wait, 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 before we get to the president, can I just quickly explain for our listeners that are far away why the prime ministers and his new wife might have killed the old wife? Because it's also a really desperate part of the story. Yeah. So... Why do you want to depress me, Gabriel? The allegations go like this. The In the build-up to him becoming president, the prime minister, I beg your pardon, uh... The old wife and the new wife go to court over who's going to be recognized as the official first lady because the official first lady gets some like special kudos and also gets a bit of a salary. So yeah. it looks like they killed her over and she won the case. The old wife won the case because they were still legally married and the new wife was like under a um, sort of under a traditional marriage. But it's complicated because in traditional marriage, divorce, yeah, you can get lots of wives, but it's really hard to, to divorce a wife. 
firstly. Secondly, and I know the story quite well because two friends of mine or friends of my mum's, uh, Julian Ozan and Prosper Bailey, were involved in shooting a movie about the king of Lesotho and his quest to find a new wife. And and that was a really important story um, because he wanted to be monogamous. And it was quite a hard cultural shift. His father had died. He's now inaugurated, inaugurated mm. to be the new king. That's kind of where the movie starts. Um, and he should get a first wife in a, in a year, right? He's a 20-year-old man. He's bucking, handsome. A prince. Uh, he's, well, king. now he's a king. He's a king. And, and he's got everything going for him. But uh, I, if I remember correctly, he's Christian and also quite worldly. And so just feels like this is the way, this is the modern way to be. And that by having one wife, you really get to commit to her for life. And this he has a very close relationship with his mom. So his mom kind of tolerates it and, and makes room for him. But I think it takes like 10, 12, 15 years. And so the stories grow further and further. What are you doing? And he, part of the beautiful thing about the movie is they go to Swaziland where there's a new wife every year with the Dance of the Reeds. And he's sort of like quite polite about it. But then like when he's in his Merc driving away and the camera's on him, he's like, I just don't, how do you afford that? <laughs> <laughs> like this is really like, ah, oh, like you can see he's really grappling with the the, the 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 tensions between between modernity and its impulse to sort mm. of like have fewer like to have quite a small family so that you can really give them the best mm. and to have a really large family to keep the the ancestral ways alive. Mm. But there's the most intense part of the movie for me is when Mugabe comes to visit for his wedding or for his engagement. He brings Grace, who he's just married, who Mugabe's just married. Mm. Grace is Mugabe's second wife. They were probably sleeping together while Mugabe's first life was around. Mugabe's first wife was, by all accounts, a really stellar woman, literally getting her hands and feet dirty, helping the poor out, tr trying to check him against his more uh, his mes messianic mm. and dark impulses. Um, but she died of cancer. And Grace, by all accounts, like a money, like a like a really ruthlessly ambitious Lady Macbeth type who is accused of beating someone up with, in South Africa with a, with a plug. Cord, yeah. <laughs> and so we were nearly going to go to war with Zimbabwe so that we could arrest her, except we didn't. Anyway, Grace and Mugabe arrive as newlyweds and the king of Lesotho cracks this fabulous joke about sort of, you know, he thought everyone in Lesotho had been giving him a lot of grief about waiting till he was so old to get married. 35 or whatever it is. He has Mugabe. <laughs> All of 80. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's very important you choose the right wife. <laughs> That's what my mom told me is what he says. And I think it, re it really is. Anyway, so it's like, I think it sucks for him because I think he's a good king and I think it's a, it's really a beautiful place. Maseri mm. is the most beautiful, like mad city. It's hold, right in the mountains. They should hold a referendum to see if they want to join us. Right. I mean, I think they might. They've basically got our currency. Most of them work here. Yeah. But those those elites in uh, Macero, the Macero elites, <laughs> will not want to. Uh, Macero mafiosa. Will not want to give up their, their, their power. Yeah. Although, um, we'll talk about this on another show, but I do think that we should apply for statehood in the United States, South Africa. 
Dude, this is like the Perman's idea. You don't just drop this no, and no, then... Uh, we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll okay. Back. Okay, so our, our, our president was, was being a bit silly. He was trying to at least rhetorically sort of talk up non-racialism and healing and all that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, he said that uh, F.W. Clerk saying that apartheid was not a crime against humanity um, was treasonous. Or he said it might even be treasonous. He was a bit sneaky with the way he put it. Mm. Still, not a not a good thing to say. It's not a good time to start accusing people of treason. Yeah, especially after, like, I think we discussed this on a Daily French show more than on Two Crickets. Yeah. No, we discussed it on Two Crickets as well because we were talking about the Mandela. Well, no, this hadn't happened yet to... to, to no, 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 but about F.W. Leclerc. Yeah, yeah, FW. The, th the thing he's accusing F.W. Leclerc of treason for is saying apartheid is not a crime against humanity. F.W. Leclerc never said that it wasn't wicked, evil, and stupid. He said it in the same sentence. He was just complaining about the very specific UN resolution. That particular term yeah. and the history yeah. of that term. And I, I think and the we circumstances both are one around think that yeah. he's kind of got like really important seeds of truth. The most important being that the UN declared the ANC to be the sole representative of black people in the country at a time when Gacha uh, Mangosutu Butelezi was more popular than Nelson Mandela when the IFP had the total support of Zulus well, and same, of a lot more people. And so the they just overrode the, Zulus. They just ignored yeah, Zulus. Well, they did the same thing with uh, what Swapo in Namibia. And then the first election gets held, Swapo gets barely 50% of the vote. Yeah. Sole so, legitimate representative is not a not a good term. Yeah, it's a really rubbish but, term. But and that was the thing to go after. But he didn't go after that, but he, did, he was yeah. complaining about the same process. But he was always very clear that like the project of non-racialism is what really matters. The project of dismantling apartheid is what really matters. And so for Ramaphosa, and then subsequently the De Klerk Foundation apologized for the confusion of the statements. So it just seems like, and then Ramaphosa comes forward and weighs in and says, uh, this is treasonous, which just seems like either he doesn't know what really happened, what was really being said, or he's cynically taking advantage of an opportunity to stigmatize a white dude uh, yeah, that has been slammed just, by he, the EFF. And at the same, in Ramaphosa's same breath, he's trying to make nice with Julius Malema and say, I'm so sorry that another AMC yeah. guy accused you of beating your wife, which I'm not sure is an appropriate response. Surely the appropriate response is, if there's credible evidence here, I hope the NPA well, is I think, investigating I think it. the, 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 the uh, the implication of him apologizing is that there is no credible evidence. But I'm not sure that there is no credible evidence. I worry that Ramaphosa has quashed the credible evidence because I don't think that guy would have come forward. He said, I've got evidence. He said, Julian, so sorry, this ANC MP whose name I forget said that Malema is beating his wife. Malema said he's going to sue him. He said, come and sue me because if we have to take this to court, then the facts of the matter, one of the defenses against libel is that you're telling the truth. Yes. And then the court will be able to test the truthfulness of the claim, which it won't do right now because Malema's wife is not bringing charges forward for you know reasons that I think you can speculate on, but you don't. It's yeah, not well, too hard to imagine people, people, various reasons. It's, yeah, it's not uncommon for victims of domestic abuse to not So it seemed like he was it. goading Malema into bringing him to court. And now that's not going to happen because uh, Ramaphosa has apologized on beh his behalf, which means that if Malema was beating his wife and there was evidence of that, that evidence is never going to see the light mm. of day unless some very clever investigative journalist finds the leak. <laughs> yeah, like that's ever going to happen. 
Um, sorry, I'm just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's not, it's probably not because they'll know it's coming from that ANC MP. And if Ramaphosa is apologizing on his behalf, he's mm. probably had a private word with him to say, you know, we need to make this. Thing uh, go stories away. like this, do, but those. those yeah, so those I am speculating, camps, but this is the this yeah. is the soap opera, right? Is our MP, our State of the Nation address, and all this stuff is taken over by these theatrics and this. Well, of course, Julius accuses people of beating their wives. I mean, Ramaphosa of beating his wife first. So I mean, yeah. Uh, but where was the evidence for that? I mean, Ramaphosa was definitely cheating on his wife. Yeah. And admitted to it. <laughs> it's all just so grim, Gabriel. Um, so anyway. Something that no one complains about, which, which is kind of fine in a way. I'm kind of glad about that. But it, it's also a sort of weird sign of how. Yeah, you know what? It's just. People it's fawn just, over him. It's, it's, not a, it's not because we don't. If it, if he was someone else, they would go after him. Very probably, Yeah. yeah. Um, like the fact that many opponents of Steenhuisen have continued, including such journalists as Farrell Hafiji, who in all other contexts would massively criticize someone probably for something along the lines of yeah. being intolerant or slut-shaming or something yeah. like that. Is talking, describes him as what is a sort of serial philanderer or something like yeah. that. I can't remember her exact words. But um, Okay, so double standards. Double maybe, standards. Maybe, that's, maybe a, that's a fun hobby horse to ride, but let's not ride that Yeah, one. let's not ride it too much. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, let's move on to another silly thing that yeah. has been said. Um, now this one's a little bit old, but uh, an oldie but a goodie. It is a goodie. Um, one of the MECs in KwaZulu Natal, uh, Nomsa Dube. This is a couple of years ago. She said that <laughs> the problem of lightning strikes is a very big problem in KwaZulu Natal because so many people have been killed by lightning strikes, and that the, the this lightning thing needed to be investigated. There needed to be some proper investigations into it, particularly because we needed to discover why. You know, it only seemed to be affecting black people. After all, she had never heard of a white person being hit by lightning. <laughs> so, to paraphrase Donald Trump, the ANC, they're not sending their best. <laughs> Dude, I mean, racist white lightning. It's Lightning itself yeah, is yeah. white. Even, even the lightning sense. is racist in this country. Dude, lightning is racist. Have I ever told you my favorite story about, I think, I think this is a Rian Malan story, my old writing mentor, author of My Traders Art and all that. So he's staying at our place again. He kind of writes some of My Traders Heart, staying at my mom's place. She has an extra bedroom and it's a place for him to sort of chain smoke and, and go away. And, and she, she sort of chases away all the mad, crazy ladies that are used to be running after him. Uh, he comes back for a similar thing when he's uh, writing another story. That's bearing the lead. Ah, <laughs> the story. <laughs> no, no, no. The story's about the story's about uh, lightning. So they go down. So and I think they go on this adventure together uh, with another guy. Was this with Dennis Beckett? I can't remember the details. Okay, but anyway, the point is, a bunch of investigate, bunch of journalists uh, go. Uh, investigating sort of uh, burning of witches in South Africa mm. and uh, Sangomas. And it, it, it was and continues to be a big problem. One of those big problems that just does not mm. get talked about because partly there's so much other crime and, and partly you touch on this sort like of awkward and people this feel nerve of sensitive and embarrassed and angry about it. Yeah. So 
because because what drives it is superstition and a mm. and a lack of penetration well, of modernity and, and also like all of these sort of witch burning things as people have shown in all cultures which do this at some point uh the inevitable reason is that there's some sort of local grievance against a person and then it's used as an excuse to yeah so in the middle ages so maintaining or, so the facade ages, the, of like traditional african yeah. belief systems uh, uncritically my, my, can become a fig leaf for exactly. bad behavior. My favorite uh, version of this was, I remember reading an interview, I think it was in the Daily Sun, with people who had who had attacked a family and killed the father or something because they yeah. suspected him of... They suspected him of turning into a snail and also terrorizing the community with his super long penis. Anyway, that's not important. <laughs> um, the, 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 the evidence, you know, this is what the journalist said, well, how do you know they were witches? Yeah. And the person being interviewed said, we know because I know that person. I grew up with them. There's no way they could have gotten that car that they've gotten now without witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just petty yeah. vengeance. Zonda. Yeah, exactly. The Zulu word for envy or hate. It was, it was just... It's a Zonda. No, it was, it, was, it was really not nice. Okay, so this story is a bit like that. So they go... It's the same thing that drives the, the, some of the Salem witch trial stuff. Exactly. No, full on... Uh, and there weren't that many uh, killings of witches in, in the UK, but the, the, a couple of those that are recorded, totally just, yeah. uh, anger at women who managed to own more property independent of men that they were supposed to at the time. Okay, so in this particular case, they go chasing after the story about these Sangomas that are being killed. Why are they being killed? Someone was struck by lightning. And so the community agreed it had to be a Sangoma that ordered it. So they went to kill the Sangoma and then also the person who'd hired the Sangoma. But then after they killed the Sangoma and the person who hired the Sangoma, someone said, no, no, it was the wrong Sangoma. It was actually that other Sangoma. So they went to kill that other Sangoma. Then someone else was struck by lightning. So they said, well, it couldn't have been either of those two Sangomas. <laughs> so they went to kill some other Sangoma. So it's like, it's hilarious. It's also properly tragic. A bad time to be a Sangoma. Yeah. Okay, so after they've killed, I think, three or four Sangomas, they come back home. Uh, uh, the, the story's, you know, okay, this is the story. And now these people that I know, whichever them they are, I can't remember what the source is, go back 10 years later and they ask how things are doing. And it's like quite hard to penetrate the story and everyone's being very, very cagey about it. And then there's some like rumors, okay, like two years later, another Sangomo was killed and then something else. And then eventually, like late at night, like smoking and drinking, they come across this guy who'd just come back from a Sangoma to get like uh, rhino horn uh, for love long time. And he was prepared to tell the full story. And he said, no, what's happened is no one buys – the new Sangomas are in town and everything's going fine, but no one buys lightning from them anymore. So the lightning market has collapsed. And it's like, this is amazing. So the, it worked. The media put some pressure and like, okay, it's very sad that these people died, but now this thing has stopped. So they're all, you know, like all these journals are like kind of really happy with each other. The guy says, no, 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 no. The lightning market is still going really well. In fact, it's better than ever. So they say, what? Who's selling the lightning if not the Sangomas? So he says, the Indians. And they say, how come? He says, they sell it for half price. <laughs> No, I don't believe that. That is a true story. <laughs> no, no, that is a true, true story. story, dude. <laughs> Indians are selling lightning for half price. You know what? You know what? <laughs> Let's move on. Um, okay, but the main thing to remember is that lightning is racist. <laughs> lightning is racist. And we need to look into we knew it. it. We knew lightning is cancelled. 
<laughs> so now that lightning's off Twitter, um, oh, this this one's this one's sort of funny in the sense that it's tragic, but it's also uh, like all of these. Yeah, like all there's of these. Death, there's death. There's death in all of these. This one, this one is just this one's depressing because you know, unlike the others, this one is actually very harmful. Yeah. Um, and this is, of course, our old friend Julius Malema, that uh, that uh, esteemed leader of the EFF, CIC, who said that no system has ever worked for Africans. This is also a couple of years ago, except Zimbabwe, because there Zimbabweans uh, Africans own the land. Now, <laughs> I need to have a small top yeah, up of whiskey. You definitely need need some more. I can see that your face is falling. No, no, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I've I've seen how sort of EFFE type acolyte type. Now I'm talking about people on Twitter, so this is not a representative sample of the nation. Yeah, but this is a representative sample of the true believers, the fanatic, the fanatics who kind of make up some of the EFF's more hardcore support. Yeah, they say when people say things are bad in Zimbabwe, they say, "How do you know?" And you say, "Well, because all the Zimbabweans are here." And then they say, "Well, don't people from Poland go to England?" Doesn't that mean that Poland is? Does that mean that Poland is a terrible place to be? Relative to England, and there's this sort of just complete disconnect, this refusal to believe yeah. anything. Yeah. Because if there's a fact that is inconvenient to this narrative, it must be either created by counter revolutionaries or evil whites, or yeah, it's either or, fake or the news, CIA, or yeah. something, Mossad, or, or 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 even if they do accept that something has gone wrong, they always say it was because of sanctions. Yeah, and of course. Most sanctions, specifically for this reason, are actually these days, especially targeted at. Yeah, they've gotten much better. Yeah. They've gotten much better. In the Nats days, bizarrely enough, South Africa was one of the last countries to have really stupid sanctions. Um, one of the things that during, really damaged our economy in the during 80s. apartheid, yeah, and damaged that part of the economy that uh, um, that like poor black people depended on. Yes. Uh, so I think, yeah, I mean that story does kind of resonate with me deeply because of this uh, lecture I went to in 2015 in Soweto's UJ campus. Thomas Piketty, the world's most famous neo-Marxist economist, comes there to speak at the annual Nelson Mandela lecture. It's kind of the first really big one after Mandela has died. And it comes at a time when the EFF is... So Mandela died. Mandela is hospitalized terminally. And like three weeks later, the EFF is born. Yes. It's like one of those weird timing things in history. And then after he dies, Piketty comes, not straight after, but soon after. He comes along and the EFF has started talking up expropriation without compensation. Nationalizing and, the mines is their big thing that they launched on. Remember that? Yeah. Which has now disappeared. They launched on that and then they pivoted. Uh, and and then Piketty comes in. I was really excited because I liked a lot of what he had to say. I mean, I think his data are great. His data are so important. Mm -hmm. I cannot under... But also Gabriel's because you're basically a communist. I'm not. I, <laughs> I, I care about the facts. And... Uh, and I and I disagree with a lot of the sort of moral claims that he tries to hook onto those facts, but there's no ignoring the facts. And the, in fact, I find the better you know those facts, the better, the, the easier it is to see through the the moral chicanery. Yeah, and this is something you've talked and written about quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, so well, I won't I think get you put it the, on the Daily Friend actually. Yeah, I have. Which I suggest that. Uh, Go and look at some of the pieces that Gabriel's written. Uh, I think he's written some good stuff about Piketty. So, and, so. and more to come in the build up to his book. But anyway, the, the most distressing thing was just this like after – so, I mean, this, this talk was astonishingly depressing because 
Piketty kind of just doesn't do any of the things that I expect him to do. He doesn't offer this, the, like in his book, one of the things he notices is that people who are driving the wedge between races or between social identities are more than more likely than not to be on side with the elite because as long as you're doing that, you're distracting from fundamental economic questions that allow the elite to prosper at the expense of the poor. There's I mean, bad inequality and there's good inequality. That, the more, that's an old socialist right, line, right? That the, the, the elites are trying to divide the working class. Yeah. With, you know, and I thought he was going to come and say that good old socialist stuff. Instead, he's like, comes and bangs the drum. I thought he was going to talk about the capital to income ratio in South Africa being, basically South Africa being very poor, in the relevant sense, in this very particular technical relevant sense, uh, not in absolute terms. When it comes to wealth distribution, he didn't talk about that at all. In fact, he was entirely negative. He basically compared South Africa to the French Revolution, said, oh, I cannot make comparisons to make instructions on what you should do. But in the end, he says, oh, so there, now I've ended my comparisons between the French Revolution and the South African Revolution, where basically he says that both are too bourgeois. The one where people's heads, where Robespierre was chopping off the heads of aristocrats until like uh, from literally sunrise to sunset until his own head was then put on the chopping block. Piketty considered that too bourgeois and considered that likewise the 1994 revolution had been too bourgeois and <laughs> that we needed more radical land reform. And you can go and read the speech and you can go watch it. And afterwards, and then he finishes the speech in the most irresponsible way. He says, oh, I want to say one positive thing. Maybe I'm sounding too negative, you know. You have to take into account South Africa has some advantages compared to France today. Specifically, France is not a growing uh, demography, whereas you in South Africa, you are having lots and lots of children. So voila, magnifique, congratulations to you. This turns out to be the best way to redistribute wealth is to have lots and lots of children. Which is like... Well, that's just because old people give their money to the young. Well, no, dude. It's a, firstly, it's true in some contexts. It's not true in all contexts. It's not true in our context. Uh, because the way that it works is if you have lots more people and they're all joining the workforce, hmm. then you get more low-skilled uh, labor. It kind of pushes the... Not a thing we, we have to deal with. We don't have that. We've got very high unemployment. We also have four to five million children that don't have a proper parent... Or, or, or parent couple to to bring them up. We have like one of the world's worst ratios of like adults to orphans and adults to kids with in, uh, infant alcohol syndrome and adults to and kids who have you, HIV. Yeah. It is, this is really like, generally speaking, having a child is kind of the most divine thing a human being can do. It's the most potent, precious, whatever the word is you want to use, thing you can do. And so it's a like if liberty should be anywhere, it should be in the right to choose how many children you want to yeah. have. I'm really not into uh, demographic management and I'm really not into Malthusians who say that you should have less children because human beings are are the source of creativity. And they innovate. And, and actually there's a, there's a really good podcast that I will find the name of. It was on The Remnant, which is an American podcast. Yeah. Where a guy argued that the best way to stop global warming is to have more children because it drives innovation. Yeah, and check it out. It is for serious. But like Piketty was not making anything like that kind of reasoned arguments. And he wasn't making that argument to the right country, in my opinion. Uh, it's just it's just like it's irresponsible to to encourage social revolution through having children. Uh, if you if you're not careful about how you encourage it. And it really just did the worst damage in my head. Until then, I defended him against people who called him a rock star economist. I thought, that's rubbish. He's a really serious, data-driven guy. And then I thought, he's literally coming here to spread, spread like sex and revolution. Anyway, 
after that, we go stand in line. I'm like standing in line to go and ask him like, how could you do this? You've broken my, like it was, it was one of the most dramatic, heartbreaking moments in my life. I'm going in the line to stand and there's people in front of me dripping in jewels uh, at this Anglo-American mining sponsored event. Remember <laughs> that the whole thing was a pivot from nationalizing the mines to nationalizing the land. And, <clears throat> and they literally saying to him, three couples in a row, thank you so much for coming here, black and white. Thank you for coming here. People keep saying how Zimbabwe is such a terrible thing. It's like a cautionary tale and not an aspirational tale. And you have given us this bigger picture sense of how things work. Like in a hundred year time span, actually Zimbabwe might be exactly on the right track. And he dwelled on it. And then he said, also, I'm, I'm not just saying Zimbabwe, many, many places, he, 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 he clearly never wanted to commit himself to saying, no, Zimbabwe is yeah, a aspirational exactly, tale. Is but he was like, the one to really look at is France 19, 1789 versus, you know, the, the, revo the violent French revolutions. Those are the ones that he's kind of saying you need sort of more of, but sort of like you need to really change the property regime and not just cut the people's heads off it was so depressing this sort of half-hearted endorsement of ewc via zimbabwe as a role model and so many of those uh, bejeweled uh, bedazzled uh, fabulous aristocrats that are chilling out there i know and i know our eff acolytes are exactly the type yeah. that you were addressing yeah. uh, you, you know uh, the, from what you've described to me of uh, Ketty, um or Piketty, he he often seems to make these claims basically of this kind of sort of inhuman macho-ness that you find in some of the socialist movement. You find this also in uh, the, the group in America, Antifa, um, and some of the sort of Bernie bros. It's this kind of lust for revolution, for the violence and the chaos that it brings. And in his case, he does it in a little bit more of a reserved way by saying, oh, well, uh, I think one of the claims he makes is that war is basically the great equalizer that destroys inequality. Is that, that I mean, it's more complicated than that. No, that is his central claim. But He's like, central so, but in his book, what he did really well in his book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century, was to say, nothing has equalized society like World War I, World War II, and the Great Depression in between. And if we if we want to avoid that social response to inequality, we need to find a smarter way to address it. Yeah. So in that, he was very clear about, I'm like not advocating violence, I'm course, not advocating yeah. stealing from people. But like when he came here, when the rubber was hitting the road, in he a country says, that where yeah. his policies really can be implemented, like America wasn't going to do this overnight at the time when he published no, that book. Not. But, but South Africa really is on the brink, was at the time on the brink of entering into an EWC regime. And he did not say, guys, you need to be very careful about this. If you have any dreams of an equal society, of redistributing wealth from the rich to the poor, of giving poor people a chance to uplift themselves out of poverty, then the number one thing you have to focus on is making sure that A, you don't break through the moral obligations that a person has to another person and B that you don't end up screwing over exactly the poor folk that you speak for and on behalf of, which is what happened in Zimbabwe. So, so here's the, th here's, here's my point that I'm trying to get at though. Yeah. This is, I think one of the things that really turns me off about socialism. Now me, I'm not a guy who's, you know, who's afraid to talk up the case for conflict and military intervention, that kind of thing, even though it's often usually very un an unpopular thing to do. You know, I, th I, I see the cause for it. I see, I, you know, I think like the Second World War intervening and it was very important. Yeah. I, I'd make a positive case for a lot of military interventions around the world. Yeah, I think we both agree there is such a thing as a just war. Yeah. Um, but there's this constant hunger in some of these fringe socialist 
socialist. It's 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 like a it's it's sort of a weird. It weirdly intersects with a kind of macho masculine socialist ideal, where they they seem to say ah oh, we they're so angry they just want to it's it's usually quite often rich entitled people they they and they want to chop off the heads of all the elites that they think have screwed them in some way. Mm. And I just don't understand it. And yet it's one of the most destructive poisonous forces in society. And I think in a lot of ways, Bernie Sanders has tried to channel this into a slightly more constructive version, but it's still ultimately yeah, it is more at the core of a lot of his his thing. Like when he says, um, you know, when they say, how are you going to pass legislation if you're a president, you know, some controversial radical stuff that he wants to do. Uh, he says, we're going to build a movement and that movement will force people to do it now he's putting it in sort of democratic terms but what does he actually mean he means mass protests every time uh the yeah. policy is not passed or that kind yeah. of thing and there's often a kind of strikes uh, union strikes. Bullying. those things are often really edging on the line of kind of violence and intimidation yeah okay so on the masculine side i hear you especially if you look at the history of trade unionism in the 20th century yeah trade unions in the 20th century it is it is just one of one of the things that milton friedman liked to talk about in the 80s is how in the seventies, the sixties, the fifties, it just was quite normal for a for a, for a, like for a father of three and a good husband and like a really self respecting guy to go and beat people up yeah. and and slash tires and break windows and, and to kill scabs and to people, kill scabs. Yeah. Uh, that kind of violence was seen as being part of the honor code of being a man, yeah. and that had changed. That's changed in America. It, it's a it, very old fashioned sort of thing. It's not cool anymore, but I see the worry about that coolness coming back. Yeah. My worry is just so, plugging so in very, into masculinity because yeah. I think I think a lot of it comes down to, like I, I think Ian McEwan had a really great line in his novel Saturday, where he's speaking about an old artist who's a who's a lech and a drunk, and uh, he's and likes to say things like every day is a new day, every day is a new blank slate, a new chance, a new beginning, and. And the comeback line is, well, that is what a lot of drunks say. <laughs> and I think that Today, like the, yeah. the phrasing of your life- Today like, is the first day of the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Like if people who feel like that, people who don't string their days one onto the next, who don't mm. have the sense of the pace of a week and the pace of the month and the pace of a year and how like how we often have at school the sense of like, oh, now I'm in grade six, next year's grade seven, yeah. like last year was grade five. It all kind of has this structure. When you become an adult, it can become a bit loose and you can let go of structure entirely. I definitely did that. And I think when you're living in that space of structurelessness, of chaos, then everything can be a blank slate. And then the frustrating thing about connecting with the world is that there is no blank slate in the world. No, is that wherever not. you go, you're entering a room that brings its own history that you have to confront and engage and deal with. Mm. And often because it's been around, I've just been around for a day since my last hangover. And this like person I'm dealing with behind the counter at the supermarket has been kind of doing this thing for a long time and they've got their set way of doing it. I have to fit in with them and that can be frustrating. And I think there's an, I think that there's a, a, a latent attitude within all people that balances out between like how much freshness you want all of the time and how much growth, genuine growth, which means putting one brick on top of the next, on top of the next yeah. you want. And people who just want to burn it all uh, politically, I think often have not dealt with that balance in their life. Yeah, no, personally. I, I agree with that completely. Um, for a depiction of the sort of muscu muscular, aggressive trade unionism, um, there's a video game called Disco Elysium, which is made by a bunch of commies. But that's not particularly important because it is a very good game. <laughs> yeah. Um, despite it's, it, that. And well, they're of, selling it. So. One of the characters, yeah, 
how commie can they be? Yeah. Uh, one of the characters in it is a racial nationalist socialist trade union macho worker. Mm. And he beats up people for the union. That's mm. like his his mm. his, 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 mm. his shtick. And it's just interesting. It's a very good game. Um and watch the Irishman. And and he's got lots of women fawning around him and he stands there massive, shirtless, with you know, this sort of rippling arms. And he's exactly that a caricature of that sort of that that bro. The yeah. ultimate bro. That that union bro. Who's like who's like so hard on the outside, but in but everyone gets to say he's like a puppy on the inside because he's really just doing it for the people. Yes. Uh and of course, one of the funny things about Bernie Sanders' current position um is that many of the unions are not actually completely on board with his policies. Yeah. Why is that? Because Medicare for All, which is his plan to reform the American healthcare system, the healthcare yeah. system would do away with all private plans, all private insurance. And they've been paying into those private insurance things. And yes, they worry because about a lot of the unions through hard years of negotiation have and negotiated incredibly good healthcare plans with their Cadillac employers. plans, they call yeah, them. Yeah, the Cadillac plans or the gold-plated plans, as yeah. they call them. Um which means that suddenly, good dental, good like yeah. suddenly the working class that is unionized will be stripped of the very good benefits it gets. God, that's hilarious. <laughs> which is why the culinary union, which is the the Nevada union, um, yes, refused to endorse Bernie Sanders and in fact criticized him. For which they received enormous amounts of death threats and nastiness. And yeah, okay, not all the Bernie Bros are bad. <laughs> no, also, no, notice how Nick brings it, back the culinary union because he's hungry. Yes, no, exactly. Um, not all Bernie Bros are bad, but the very online ones, there is a little, there is a section of them who are genuinely Stalinists. They like to joke about how they're going to put everyone, especially the the other Democrats in gulags. Because they are Russian bots. Exactly. They, they're, uh, what's the phrase for them online? Tankies. Do you know what a tanky is? Someone who unironically... Uh, endorses the Soviet Union yeah. and truly believes that yeah. that the Soviets were the good guys in history. Um, a nasty group of people, and unfortunately, just like Donald Trump had some nasty alt right uh, sort of neo Nazi race realist yeah. people attached to him. Yeah. So does Bernie have this? Yeah. I uh, think he is in a lot of ways the sort of mirror Donald Trump. Anyway, well, can I say one thing about yeah, the American yeah. election? So I think he is like the mirror of Donald Trump in his supporter base a bit. Not in his personality, because Bernie is so one note. Donald Trump is the jazziest yeah, speaker did, I've ever Donald come Trump across. Goes everywhere, and, <laughs> and he says different things from day to day. Yeah, <laughs> like from breath to breath. Yeah. In the same breath, he'll, he'll he can he'll, contradict himself. He'll contradict twice. a long-held policy position three times. Yeah, <laughs> in three different ways, like a triple negative. Whereas Bernie Sanders. Only says one thing. And that is that uh, the rich billionaire classes. The billionaires, the 1%, have been taking all of the new wealth. Although, yeah, he has changed his mind on immigration and he has changed his mind on guns. Uh, he's he, now anti-guns. He used, he used to be, to pro be guns. pro-guns yeah. and he used to be anti-immigration. And he's now pro-immigration and anti-guns. Thank you, AOC. So anyway, <laughs> I feel like the, the personality mirror image of... Donald Trump is Mike Bloomberg. And I just want to throw this out there and then we can move on to the next thing. I think if they were to run against each other for the final, in a way it could, here's a question that I ask myself a lot about the election. I don't, I really don't care as much about who's going to win and who's running as I do about how is the battle fought? Because it's my opinion that the means to the end at this stage is more important than the end. It's, I think it's more important that you have a proper fight. Uh, and by proper fight, I mean 
something that raises the IQ of the nation. <laughs> I don't mean okay, the Gabriel, union bros bashing sweet, each other. You sweet innocent child. You <sighs> sweet summer child. <laughs> anyway, dude, so here's how I think Bloomberg versus Trump could could make for a for a lifting of the IQ. They're both billionaires. They both said horrible things about women. They both are like- They're both very unpleasant human beings. Unlikable in so many ways. And so I feel like they will cancel each other out in that regard. And that everyone will have to talk about the policies. Is that, that kind of what you're thinking? Ring. Doesn't that, just think about it. Just Gabriel, think about Gabriel. it. It'd be a month of it. Stalingrad of like them burning each other and like their surrogates would be burning each other. Oh, he's the worst, he's the worst. And then they would just see how their supporters, this is, this is, not, this is not scratching the edge. It's, it's, the only way to scratch the edge is to make the case for why my policies would be better for you versus for why my policies would be better for you. We'd have a higher IQ or, debate. Or, or what's going to happen is probably more No, that's what's going to happen. Here's what's, here's what's going to actually happen. No, 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 no. That's what's going to happen. Uh, Donald Trump surrogates are going to say, He's the second coming of Christ, and he's Cyrus from the Bible, reborn, literally. I mean, this is actually a thing some of his supporters have been saying. And the Bloomberg people will say, he's the one principled man in America who can stop this neo-Nazi fascist Donald Trump from being elected. And these two versions will collapse into each other, and there will be a lot of adverts either way. And in the end, one of them will win, and everyone will be stupider. You can take your bets, audience, which you think is the more likely outcome. <laughs> but let me move on to the last yeah, one. Yeah, I'm right. So I don't really care what anyone bets. No. Because like, I'm right. <laughs> Big if true. Um, the last one is, I think, one of my favorites. And it was it, it came from a discussion with, with, uh, with someone who said that perhaps sometimes all the many, you know, we are, we are generally opponents of the ANC in most of the time. And he, he wondered aloud whether perhaps we overestimate our opponent. And this comes from the, um, I think it was a deputy minister of defense. Anyway, it was a senior official in the South African defense uh, apparatus. Yeah. And to be fair to him, he was probably trying to say something else. He just got a bit muddled. He wasn't having a very good day. But what he did say, and we kind of have to take him on his word because he did in fact say this. Senior guy in the army. Yeah. Long rambling paragraph, but the gist of it was something like this. So the South African Navy, it's a very good thing that it has submarines. And it's a very good thing because firstly, we can educate the people. And also, we can deter sharks. Wait, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so the second thing, <laughs> I don't know what to say. So I want to go back to the first thing. We're going to educate people with submarines. It, it's not clear how. Because the thing is, <laughs> in a way, it just gives perspective to how mad the second thing is. <laughs> it's like, like a depth charge. To be fair to him, it's, I do think he was trying to say something else and then he got like sort of nervous and awkward and and he sort of bumbled his way through and this was the end result. But it's it's quite a thought. Yeah, our submarines. <laughs> and so one of the things is then I was thinking like, so sharks, maybe sharks are racist. <laughs> They're called the great white sharks. Yeah, exactly. That's, that or doesn't sound like a good shocks. beginning. 
Exactly. So for, for to start with, yeah. Why does great only get attached to to? You, you can imagine the race warriors. You can you see Miss McKaiser saying, you know, the one thing I just want to talk about is how whenever there's something white, we always attach a word like a great Grated. to it. Yeah. But, but whenever there's a thing like black, we attach a small or silly or you know you or whole see, or whole. You can see you see Miss McKaiser doing that bit, fixating on, on that for like three hours for three hours and getting people to call in. And anyone who disagrees, you can say, well, you know, I almost finished a degree at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another thing. If you don't know, the biggest guy in talk radio in Joburg, like if you mention Oxford, if you just say the word, <laughs> like you can call in about something else and just say Oxford, they'll hang you up. <laughs> I think I've got a friend who did that once. <laughs> A hero of the revolution. They were like talking friends. about potholes. They were like something everyone can really get behind. We don't like potholes. He's like, oh, and there's this pothole in Oxford. I don't really like. Have you seen it? <laughs> you know, I've actually been to the 702 studios and here's a fun fact. Yeah. They found through market research that, um, so often talk radios develop people who are kind of, I wouldn't call them fans, but they're like, they're obsessed with with it and they always Super call fans. in they always call in and often it's hate calling in but sometimes it's not sometimes they just want to talk yeah uh they just love the sound of their own voice and anyway these these people much like they're very unpopular though with the rest of the the the, the listenership the vast vast majority right this very small group of people which is usually no more than about sort of 10 people even in groups of millions yeah um <laughs> So, so, you, so they keep their switchboards. Actually, mm. I have once the number is flagged as one of those people. Yeah, uh, it rings but never answers their calls. So, if you are a person who used to regularly call into seven hundred two and they would always answer your call, and now all of a sudden it rings but no one answers, <laughs> it's not because the phone line is down. It's not because the phone line it is, is down. you. <laughs> it's really you. It's just you. Stop being so negative. Everything in South Africa is good. Can't you tell? Nick and I have been talking for the last nearly hour about how everything in South Africa is really good. And I think my blood sugar level is about to crash. We've been very positive, very joyous, looking into the, the ups and downs. All the many wonderful things our politicians Some ups and we find the light side and things. But I think the funniest thing that's been said in the past couple of years is this, which is that we will only go ahead with EWC if it doesn't affect food security or the economy. <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing about that one is how many people believed it. Oh my God. Dude, no one laughed. It was said over and again exactly. in halls in front of thousands of people. We are going to completely disrupt the, 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 the private property regime without disrupting the economy. It's like, oh my God. It's like, it's like my friend of mine was drawing attention to me. Uh, one of our major business papers said, you know what we really need to do to get the jobs going? Mm. We've got so much unemployment. We need to increase GDP. Well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's like, what do you think GDP is? You think there's like some lever? There's a room somewhere. Yeah, there's yeah. a basement. <laughs> we just need a and there's a guy sitting in front of it, and he's just like <laughs> fast asleep. <laughs> and if you just go wake him up, and you say, "Could we, could we take it up from one to two? Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just to two quickly. 
Just to too quickly. Then we'll get more jobs. Yes. Alternatively, if like we can get rid of the bad rules so that people hire more people, they'll get more productive. And isn't there a P in GDP? Ooh. <laughs> if you increase productivity, maybe maybe increasing jobs is the thing that increases GDP. Maybe GDP is the, anyway. <sighs> I, for one, welcome our new Ethiopian overlords who, yeah. at, at, this, at this rate- Fastest growing economy will, will in the be, world in 10 years. Will be ruling over us. Making peace, yeah. They'll be intervening in our government. They'll be sending military Dude, expeditions they to are gonna, here Ethiop- in 50 years. Addis Ababa is going to rule Pretoria before Pretoria rules Maseru. And Pretoria is actively engaged yeah. for the third time in my lifetime in <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're probably right there. In Gabriel. some Masira oversight. And okay, on that, on that, no, oh, no, yes, no, hold on. you wanted to read from a piece of poetry. Okay, so we just had this wonderful moment in the office where two colleagues kind of ended up spontaneously reading this poem out loud together. So yes, it's a good good idea to end on a bit of heroic poetry. Gabriel, take us away. <sighs> it little profits that an idle king by the still hearth among these barren crags matched with an aged wife. I meet and dole unequal laws into a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. This is a guy who's been in a place much like a place that you've just come back from in the East Rand, much mm. like places I've visited up and down the countryside where it's like the beauty of tranquility is there, but there's there's like a complete oppression of anyone who wants to take an adventure because they get that Zonda thing. Yes. They get cut down. Yes. And this guy says, no, I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me and alone, on shore, and when through scudding drifts the rainy Hades vex the dim sea. I am become a name. For always roaming with a hungry heart, much have I seen and known. Cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least, but honored of them all, and drunk delight of battle with my peers, far in the ringing plains of windy Troy. I am part of all that I have met. Yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, as though to breathe were life, life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains, but every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things, and vile it were for some three sons to store and hoard myself, and this great spirit yearning and desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. So there's a little bit of it, and I'm going to cut through the bit where he talks about his son Telemachus and how miserable he's been hanging out with his son and his wife just sitting around and, and how he wants to go forward into the great world again. That ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder and the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads. You and I are Old, old age hath yet his honor and his toil. Death closes all. But something ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done, not unbecoming men that strove with gods. 
The light begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes. The slow moon climbs. The deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends. Come, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off and setting well in order to smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all western stars until I die. It may be that gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see great Achilles, whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek to find and not to yield. Very good. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. Have a wonderful day.